Well, believe it or not, I actually want to get back to the book of Exodus, despite maybe how it appears, especially as you know, we left off on Moses about to re- receive instructions on how to build the temple, and they're really important. I've never heard a sermon series on it. I've never even heard a Sunday school series on it. It's really important, and it's the Word of God. But for whatever reason, I keep having the thought that before we do that, uh, we need to take the time to think through what it is to be a Christian living in Greenville in our weird, contentious, angry, confused, pandemic, highly individualistic times. I mean, how should we be thinking about these things? How should we, what should be our goals? What should be our vision? How should we live? You know, a few weeks ago, if you were there for one of those joint Sunday schools, I I walked through our vision and mission statement, which that's actually found in the front flap of your bulletin. And I don't know if you, you look at it ever, but it's been there since 2015. And really, you know, for the next month or so, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to basically work through why we have the vision statement we have and what it's trying to accomplish. And we're going to do that. There's lots of ways we could do that with scripture, but we're going to do that by way of John chapter 13 through 17. And what is really Jesus's final teaching to his disciples before he was arrested and crucified and died. But today, we are ending our summer series on the Psalm of Ascents, ironically, not with a Psalm of Ascent, but with a a well-known Psalm that will serve as a transition to our series in the book of John. It's one I'm sure you know well. It is Psalm 23. Let me read for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so kind and gracious, that you do not lose faith, you do not lose hope, you do not grow weary of your people. In fact, you have given us the great shepherd, the one who is with us in all things, who suffered for us, who knows our sin better than we do, who knows what it is to be separated from God in a way that we cannot. Lord, we thank you for the mercy we have in him. We pray now that through his spirit, he would shepherd us this morning, that we would would see how good you are and how beautiful you are and how worthy you are of our worship in our work and everything you've given to us and that we might want to in turn be your sheep and walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, Those are simple, beautiful words that are, you know, simultaneously comforting well, offensive at the same time. I mean, for God to be your shepherd means that he alone is in control of your life. 
So on the one hand, that, that's really comforting. It's comforting to know that what's happening to you is not random. It's not unforeseen on, on God's part. And it's not something where he's like, well, I didn't intend that at all. He knows what's happening. He's in control. No, like what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50 and what Paul echoes in Romans chapter 8, the sin and evil and suffering that we endure, God will actually use that for good and for your benefit. But on the other hand, to say that God is our shepherd, it's offensive, at least to how most Americans think of themselves, because it, well, it knocks us down a notch. We aren't the Lord of our life. We aren't the captains of our ship. We aren't writing our own stories. And what's more, you know, the shepherd and sheep, they're not equals. The shepherd is not the sheep's co-pilot. No, the, the shepherd is the one who directs the course of the sheep's life. He, he feeds the sheep. He tells the sheep where to go. Why? And it's, it's, it's not just that, that good shepherds know what's best for the sheep. That's true. It's that they own the sheep. They own the sheep. The sheep are his property. Of course, you know, a sheep can protest. A sheep can be willful, as the famous hymn says. We just, we just heard Angie play. You know, we are prone to wander and leave the God we supposedly love. But the good shepherd chases after the sheep. The good shepherd will, will turn the wayward sheep back on the way he should go until eventually the sheep learns to say what David says here, I shall not want. The sheep shall not want for any other shepherd than this God and the life that he has provided. Now, don't read this as merely nice, spiritual-sounding language. You know, something that's nice to say in Sunday school, but we don't think it has any bearing on the rest of life. Or it's something that's nice to put on a, you know, a pastel poster that maybe you'd see in a pediatrician's office you know, with cartoon kids and cartoon sheep. No, this, this is actually a confession of submission. You know, that dirty word, submission, that's what this is. It's bending the knee. It's bowing our heads and saying, listen, my life belongs to you. Do with me what you will. And by the way, that's what we do every Sunday in, in multiple ways in this service. I mean, not least of which is the call to worship, which is the call to recognize he's God and you're not, and to give your life to him. The profession of faith works the same way. The confession of sin works the same way. The Lord's Supper that we're getting ready to celebrate works the same way. All those things are statements of submission. That's how you should see them. So David is basically saying, listen, I, I, I'm not looking for happiness. I'm not looking to be my own sheep. I'm looking to be satisfied in you, oh God. So let's think through that. You know, David, just for context, David was a king with far more power and options and the ability to break the law than you and I will ever know. But even before that, he was a king in waiting, raised up from the lowest of the low, who was persecuted for years by the wicked King Saul. So in power, which he had, or poverty, which he experienced too, or something in between, the same holds true. I shall not want. God is enough. I trust in his leadership and his provision. I trust 
He knows what he's doing, even when I can't see it and have no clue what's going on, which, by the way, is our perpetual situation. You may think you know, you don't. We have no idea what's going to happen this afternoon. You know, whether in caves in the wilderness or the plush confines of the royal bedroom, God is leading me. That's what David's saying here. This is why you know, Proverbs says over and over again to trust in God's knowledge, in his wisdom, in his word, and not in my own thinking and feelings. And that's really important. Our thinking can be logically consistent, but badly wrong because we're working from wrong assumptions and our feelings, oh man, okay, our feelings can be a great indicator that there's actually something wrong with us, but they're often a horrible guide for making decisions. He's the shepherd. I'm the sheep. That's the relationship and how it needs to be how it must be for us to be a, a fully alive human as God intended. And that's what David's after here. And he meant it, you know, when he, the same thing, I shall not want when he enjoyed the glory of victory on the battlefield, which he had. He meant it when he was in the depths of sorrow and despair as he spent another year on the run in the desert from a psychopath. He meant it when he was in the depths of his sin, like for sexual assault and murder and his lack of faith that cost thousands of lives, he meant it when he was in the comfort of palace life. It's like what Paul writes in Philippians chapter four. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be abound or how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is the context of that last sentence that so many people use for football games or whatever? Whether he's rich or poor, whether he has enough today or he hasn't eaten in three days, Whatever that context may be, God is with him. That's what that means. That does not mean you can beat a running back. But what I want you to consider is not so much our relationship to material goods or the lack of them, though that's how we naturally read this, and that's how, how Paul is obviously at least barely talking about that, but how David and Paul are not very interested in happiness. Let me say that again. Paul and David are not very interested in happiness. Happiness, you see, is a fleeting thing. It's based on our circumstances, and circumstances can change on a whim. You know, in any given day, you can be happy, angry, frustrated, apathetic, and sad, and all of it can be caused by things like the weather, indigestion, Twitter, or traffic. No, what Paul... And David want is contentment in God, not just contentment in itself, as in like, well, I'm happy with this thing I am. I hope you are, but it's more than that. It's contentment in their life with God. They don't want some other life. They aren't measuring themselves against other people. They aren't, you know, singing that old hip hop, hip -hop tune that says, you know, if only I was a little bit taller. 
If only I had a girl, I'd call her. You know, if only I, I looked like this certain thing or had that certain thing, then I would be happy. No, Paul and David find their life in communion with God, not in comparing their circumstances against someone else's or defining their value in the things they own or don't own, or even in the fleeting pleasure of an ephemeral emotion like, like happiness. And happiness is good. It is a good emotion. It's when those other things become the goal of life, the things that we think will make us perpetually happy, that life starts to run off the rails. I mean, think about it. Americans chase happiness all the time, all the time. But happiness is at best transitory. It ebbs and flows. I mean, even your happiest moments, like when you say, I wish this day could last forever. Even those best days will eventually fade. And chasing after perpetual happiness is like trying to eat the entire cake, hoping to recreate the pleasure of the initial bite. There's a law of diminishing returns. You gotta wait till the next birthday party. Don't eat the whole cake. You just can't do it. You know, as the author of our, our men's study book so powerfully argues, if your life is spent in pursuit of happiness, not only will you never find it, you will never actually grow into maturity. You see, to be a man or a woman of God is to live for the sake of the other. It's to sacrifice ourselves, including our happiness at times. And if you're wondering what your annoyance is or your frustrations, often it's because you're being forced to sacrifice your happiness. No, it's in pursuit. It's living in pursuit of something better for someone else, particularly God. So, for example, Peter Crift gives an insightful thought experiment in, in the same book that helps get at this. You know, imagine that you are a Jewish parent in Germany and it's the height of World War II. And your family is in the concentration camps. And imagine that the commander of that concentration camp you're in has singled out your 17-year-old son and asked him to help corral your fellow Jews into the gas chambers. So if your son's willing to do this, he will receive a clean room, food, a bed, and the comforts he was used to having prior to the war. If he refuses, he will be tortured along with the rest of his people and he will be the first into the chamber. So the question is, what do you want your son to choose? Well, if you've raised your son to pursue happiness, you knew, you know, like when, when parents say, listen, I just want my kids to be happy. I just want my kids to be happy, which by the way, we are seeing the effects of that in our culture right now, of what it looks like when parents just want their kids to be happy. Well, then guess what he's gonna choose? He's going to choose comfort at the expense of his fellow Jews. And why wouldn't he? I mean, at the heart of, I just want my kids to be happy is the belief that they shouldn't have to suffer for anyone or anything. And if you've raised your son, though, to be a sheep of the great shepherd, living for the sake of others, he will choose death. You know, for the world, and we see this all the time in our country now, choosing happiness is the natural choice, maybe even the highest good because for them, there is no resurrection. There is no resurrection unto life. 
This life is as good as it gets. And even in a concentration camp, they will pursue happiness over self-sacrifice to the detriment of others. You know, better to live a few days longer with a few more comforts than to die with nothing. But for those who belong to God, we can deny the immediate gratification of fleeting happiness, fleeting comfort, because we trust that this God will give us something better, something permanent, something that will not fade and has demonstrated it through his son, Jesus. That 17-year-old boy, he will know and he'll live it out in a way that many gray-haired men in our culture do not and will not. He'll know that his death is not the end of him. And as much as it would hurt to watch that happen, it would not be his end. It would not be his end. To be a sheep is to live in light of this God's promises, sacrificing ourselves to him and trusting that he has our best interests at heart. In a country that is constantly in search of comfort and happiness, I shall not want is the most countercultural way of life we can choose. Now, when David speaks about green pastures and still waters, it's a way of speaking about God providing exactly what we need when we need it. He makes us, notice that language, he makes us, he's not giving us the choice. He makes us lie down and rest. And like we talked about with Psalm 127 last week, He won't allow us to be driven forever by anxious toil. He leads us to still water, to just the sort of life-giving refreshment we need. Now, though I'm sure this does have to do with meeting our physical needs, and it is absolutely true that some of those moments can refresh everything about you. Think about when you're really hungry, you haven't eaten in a long time, and then you have something good to eat and how it just resets you. That, that's what's in view. But I think he means more because he tacks on that last phrase, he restores my soul. When David says soul, he means your person. You know, that thing that makes you, you, your heart, and your mind, your emotions, your thoughts, your desires, all of that wrapped up that is uniquely you. God restores your person. And again, like we saw last week with Psalm 127, he gives rest to his beloved. He doesn't leave us to find our life in the chaos of a flood. He brings us to quiet ponds. He restores us to himself with simple, unexpected things. That's why Sabbath is such a critical, lived-out sign and practice of the life to come. God promises rest and gives to us right now, in fact, when we are surrounded by by death and the demand for anxious toil, he gives to us momentary rest, showing us what is to come. He restores us when everything is saying, no, 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 you must work for it. No, 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 you must fix yourself. He says, no, I will do that for you. He leads us to places we would probably never choose for ourselves, you know, things like Sabbath, restoring the depths of our very being when we least expect it. And with the resurrection of Jesus, you know, David's psalm takes on an even deeper meaning when we see that the promise is that God is going to renew and restore every single atom of you, not just your soul. The right now, our moment-by-moment life is deeply important. I mean, how you live right now 
absolutely matters to God, but it's transitory. It's passing quickly by. Children grow up. Parents die. Our bodies and our memories start to fade. What was once considered recent is now ancient history. In this moment, in this age, in this crazy time that we're living in, it's going to pass. One way or another, it's going to pass. But even as it is transitory, even as it is fleeting, it is not the end. If God is the one who restores us, he is also the one who leads us in paths of righteousness. That is, he works in us, he shapes us to be in right relationship with him and with each other. It's just like what Paul says in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is incredible. Even our righteousness, even when we do things well, even when we love him as we should, it is all a gift. It is all a gift that he freely gives to us. He leads me in paths of righteousness, not for my glory, but for his. And this is what the nature of love actually is, you know. If the pursuit of happiness is really ultimately the selfish pursuit of myself, to love is to pursue the glory of another. It's why Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, let love be genuine. Boy, do we need that today. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Those are all outward facing things we do. If you love what is good, if you are learning to love as God loves, which is what he wants you to do, you will seek to show honor to everyone, especially to the people of faith. And this is radically different from what most people think. You know, don't, don't seek your happiness or your success or your validation. No, seek everyone else's. So don't be concerned with your stats, your playing time, or if you're one of the stars of the team. No, be a good teammate. Be the sort of player that makes other players look good. Or think of it this way. You know those times when, when someone genuinely compliments you? Not the, not the flattery, not the superficial, polite stuff, but genuinely compliments you or encourages you or points out something that you've done well and how good that makes you feel and how it lifts you up. That's supposed to be a major character trait of God's people. This is what we're supposed to be doing for each other, which means we're supposed to be noticing it and pointing it out. So if we're doing this as a community, you know, seeking to honor everyone, we won't need to seek our own validation or happiness because someone will be doing that for you. Now, I'm not talking, again, about false platitudes or flattery. I'm talking about genuine, real encouragement. It's the difference between 
narcissistic self-confidence, which is what we see out in the world, and genuine affirmation. The difference in the way a person walks between seeking to be a star and seeking to be a, a good teammate. Love one another, honor one another, allow God to lead you in his path of righteousness for his glory, and you, in turn, will find you are more than satisfied with what he provides for you. Now, verse four takes a turn, and it's a hard one. It's not just to green pastures and still waters. Walking through the valley of the shadow of death is a path that God leads his people through too. God does not promise a comfortable life, that the grass will always be a, a luscious green, or the waters just so. No, Jesus promised his people both life with him, we have eternal life now, but also pain and suffering for following him. I mean, Jesus in Matthew 16 described discipleship as bearing a literal cross. I mean, think on that. He didn't mean we would perpetually suffer in this life, though some Christians do, but he did mean that our daily lives would be a call to come and die to ourselves and, and live for him and for neighbor, which, well, it may include a literal cross. I mean, just consider Jesus by his own practice. Jesus was obedient to his father out of love for him, in submission to him and out of love for his neighbor. And, and guess what? Here we are. Here we are, a product of his love for God and for us. You know, God doesn't just allow hard things to happen to us, though he does. He leads us through them, just as he did with his son, Jesus. And he promises us that he is with us in that, that he is shepherding us, that his rod and his staff, they're not there to beat you down. They're there to comfort you and to direct us, to nudge us in the ways that we should go, no matter how it may feel to us. And this is where you know, people get really confused because they hear this and they naturally assume that if God is with us, now wait a minute, if God is with us, if he really loves us, then he will not allow any pain to come to us. He won't allow us to have any troubles at all. You know, it's a lot like uh, when, when newlyweds are surprised to find out that marriage is hard, that they can be really angry at their spouse. It's the sort of thing that people who just want to be happy naturally assume and put upon God. So, for example, you know, I believe God allowed me to foolishly and sinfully experiment with cigarettes when I was 12 when I was 12, which led to an addiction that lasted for 20 years. And this January will mark 15 years of sobriety. And through all the experience of me trying to hide that sin from other people, especially when I was in ministry, because it's incredibly shameful to work in a church and have an addiction, you know, of all my, my failures of trying to quit, and there were hundreds of attempts of the health scares of the emotional and financial toll it put on my marriage, of the experience of holding one of my toddlers and realizing he smelled like an ashtray, and perhaps you know, still, still the future impacts of the addiction I have yet to encounter. You know, in all of that, God was walking with me and preparing me to walk with others when they faced similar hardships. Now, it's, it's not a path I would ever choose for myself again, and I absolutely regret my youthful, stupid, willful decisions. But God never left me 
through those times, even when I had rejected him and become an atheist and lived a very rough life. You know, we have often bought into the lie that if God really loved me, he would not allow me to suffer. Suffer, he, he would have stopped me when I was a foolish 12-year-old because suffering or enduring pain can never be good. I'm here to tell you it can be. It can be. You know, in my experience, mature Christians, you know, the people who really get Jesus, I'm not talking about the professional Christians. I mean, the people who really get Jesus, the people I look up to, they're all damaged. Every last one of them damaged. They carry scars. They have emotional wounds that aren't quite healed. They walk with a permanent limp. They are people who have endured self-inflicted wounds, hardships, sufferings from other people, losses and injustice. And in all of that, they have come to see Jesus in it. I mean, more than that, they came to saw that Jesus was with them in it. And they don't have things together. They still struggle with sin. Sometimes sin they've struggled with since their youth. And yet God is still with them. Are they happy? Sometimes. All of us are happy sometimes, but never all of the time. No, they have learned contentment with God as their shepherd. They have learned and they are still learning how to submit to him. I shall not want. Verse five gives us the picture of David sitting down to the table of the king of kings. And God prepares this feast, not in the palace or the sanctuary like we, we probably should expect, but in the presence of David's enemies. I mean, have you ever wondered why one of our most important rituals, a sacrament, no less, involves eating? It's a covenant celebration that shows that we together are in relationship with God, that we belong to him, that we have been made sons and daughters of the kingdom, and we have a place. He has given us a place. He insists that we have a place at his table. The Lord's Supper, as we celebrate it now, is a fairly humble meal because of what it celebrates, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for us and our salvation. But at the same time, it looks forward to the day when we will dine with our Lord in that great marriage feast of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem when heaven and earth have come together. And every time we eat it, it is a reminder that we are not distant from God. We are more than just acquaintances or even just as sheep. We, we aren't servants attending to the feast. We aren't invited guests or even an honored guest. No, we are treasured family members. He's put our, our name, not just on, on the chair we're going to sit in, but on his hands. He's tattooed us to himself. He will not let us go. And yet in this life, where does God prepare this meal? Not in hallowed halls or behind walls of protection. No, he prepares it in the presence of our enemies. We fellowship with God in this beautiful building, obviously. I, I, I understand that. But we're not safe here. We aren't safe here. No, we eat at his table in the midst of the world. And David keeps going by praising God for setting him apart as a king. 
Just like this feast, he set apart as a king. He was anointed, that is, he was a Christ. To be Christ is to be anointed. Who, you know, like Jesus, was anointed as Lord and King in the midst of his enemies. Now, to be sure, we live, we live in a post-Christian culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to our beliefs, even as, well, none of us fear being shot in the street for being a Christian. Even so, God's people are intended, this is where we're intended to be, in the midst of the world, feasting with God, anointed to be lights to that same world, proclaiming the rightful king. And we are supposed to see this actually as an honored privilege. We get to do this. We get to carry the name of the king. Like David, we we have a seat. It's the opposite of what we actually find with Jonah, for example, that, you know, rebellious prophet who who actually stood in as a symbol for rebellious Israel, who refused to love her enemies and be a light to the nation. That's her history. Israel, like what we so often see with Christians in our country, loved herself and hated her enemies. You know, Israel, who was set in the midst of the fallen wicked nations that flowed out from the Tower of Babel. Israel, set apart to be the means by which God would bring these wicked nations back to him, redeeming the world through her. She refused her calling. She did. She she took her salvation lightly. She hated the world and in turn resented God for his graciousness. So just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish and then reluctantly, to put it mildly, preached a half-hearted sermon to Nineveh for three days, hoping that God would burn that city to the ground. So Israel spent 80 years in exile for her rebellion. And even when God brought her back to the land, she refused to be a light to the world. But there's Jesus, the faithful Jonah, Jesus, the true Israelite, who preached the gospel of the kingdom for three years to his own people, suffered and died at their hands, spent three days in the belly of the earth, was raised to new life, and ever since has been bringing the nations into his kingdom. The people of God have always been set apart to be a light to the nation, to be blessed by God in the midst of her enemies, and to preach to the Ninevehs of the world with the hope that they will turn. It's in the midst of that calling, which, by the way, is not always that happy, that we will find our greatest joy, which is different, and we'll find meaning. David concludes with these wonderful words. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, I I naturally want to read goodness and mercy as as wealth and happiness, but that's, that's not what David means. It means he will enjoy God's presence and favor, no matter his present circumstances, and he's going to enjoy it forever. David lives his present moment in light of that future promised life. He can take his present moment more seriously because of it. His, his present life takes on far deeper meaning because, it, because of it. His life is not meaningless at all. So think of Joseph, you know, his life as a slave in Egypt where he in turn rose to be one of the most powerful people on the planet would have been remarkable by any standards, but ultimately it would be a meaningless fairy tale if there was no future life beyond this present one. He would have just been one of the lucky few, or what our culture calls, you know, those despicable one percenters. 
You know, isn't it telling that Americans are perpetually pursuing happiness? I mean, that's what you're doing when you doom scroll on your phone for hours or, you know, binge watch shows or keep on drinking well beyond whatever initial pleasure you had from it. And yet so many people remain unhappy. I mean, maybe that's some of us. No, the reason we want to pursue maturity, the reason we want to be shaped to his word, the reason we want to struggle, and it is a struggle against instant gratification, the reason we want to sacrifice ourselves, which often will mean sacrificing our momentary happiness, is because we trust that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully puts it, they ask the question, we'll end with this. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you have given so much. You're so good. You're so faithful. You are so kind. You are so steadfast. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this mercy. And as we now approach your table, may you be with us in this. May this be a sacrament in which it truly is a means of grace in which we commune with you. And you put deep within us in our hearts and our minds that truth, that confidence that you are with us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.